Thank you for joining us uh, online. Uh, if you'd like to take your Bibles and turn them to Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, um, and we're going to be sort of bouncing around this passage a little bit as we consider um, the next question. Uh, the kids in the back are learning a new question this evening, and so um, in kind, what we like to do is, is learn that same question. Uh, again, this is so that you can foster discussions among your family as you go home or later on this week and just talk about the meaning of these things. Uh, so again, we're in a section looking at the goodness of God. And just to quickly review, what is our good God like? He's holy, loving, perfect in all that he is and all that he does. He's true, noble, just, pure, praiseworthy. And it is because of God that we even know what good is. And that's such an important thing to keep before us because we want to define goodness according to our own definition. Uh, but that, when we define goodness, it leads us to a lacking goodness, or really it leads us to not have goodness at all. Um, and so God is the one who defines goodness. And we see that in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so if God is intrinsically good, then that means that all that he does is good. And so who gives us all good things? It is God who gives us all good things. The Lord is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. How good is God? Well, God is so good that he is completely separate or holy in every one of his ways. He is holy. He's perfectly good, perfectly pure, and perfectly committed to his glory. And of course, Isaiah, as he describes the vision of the angels in heaven, they speak three times, emphasizing the, um, the superlative degree in which God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And because God is good, because he is good in all his actions and his deed, then is it possible for God to sin? And of course, does God ever sin? No, his character and actions are always righteous. It is impossible for him to treat someone in a sinful way. And we saw the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all his works. And I think this is where we sometimes struggle with this. Because the circumstances in our life are not always or don't always feel like they're good and feel like they're righteous. They don't always feel like there's kindness in the way in which we experience the difficulties of life. And so when, we, when our experience of life comes up against a statement of Scripture and they seem to be in opposition, what is it that we need to lean upon or grow in in those instances? What's the thing that we're to have as our hope through all this? It's faith. Faith is that which sees one thing but realizes that below that there is a, another reality. And it, and it depends upon the truthfulness of God's word. Do we believe that this verse is true? Or do we reject it and do we turn away from it? And so if, if God's word is true, then can he ever lie? Does God ever lie? And he never lies. He's absolutely trustworthy and his word is absolute truth. And we see this as Paul writes to Titus in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the world began. Does God give to everyone good things they do not deserve? Is he gracious? And he is a gracious God who delights in giving good things to everyone. And he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, 
and his mercy is over all that he has made. And so we looked at this next question, would God rather punish people or forgive them? And we saw God's love, God loves to forgive and show mercy by withholding the judgment we rightfully deserved. And Jeremiah speaks of this in Lamentations 3, 22-24. The steadfast love of the Lord, when will it cease? Never. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And then a couple weeks ago, we considered if God is a God who is forgiving and and merciful, he is also a God who is loving. He is actually the source of all love. How can we even know what love is? It has to be demonstrated to us by God himself. And God is the source of all true love. Without him, there would be no love. And John makes this abundantly clear. Anyone who does not love, so for lacking love, it is an indication that we do not know God. Because God is love. So we've talked about the goodness of God. And we've talked about a number of different words that we use to talk about that. We talk about his love. We talk about his mercy. We talk about his forgiveness. We talk about his grace. Um, But does that then mean, because God is merciful, because he's loving, because he's gracious, does that mean then that he just simply overlooks sin. And so the question we're going to consider today is, does God look the other way when we sin? Can God, as a loving God, just say, oh, I'm not going to deal with that sin? Can God, as a gracious God, extend that grace to such a point that he doesn't deal with sin? Is God a God who lets those aspects of his nature, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his grace, sort of push out or crowd out his other attributes of justice and judgment. And so, of course, the answer is, does God look the other way when we sin? The answer is no. God hates all sin because he is holy. God hates all sin because he is holy. And so we're going to talk about a subject this evening that is not a, not a subject that is very popular in our day and age today. And it's seen in the first words of our verse for today, Romans 1.18. What is it that God reveals from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I think it's interesting that in this catechism lessons that we've been going through, the wrath of God and our discussion of the wrath of God is discussed in the section where we speak about the goodness of God. I think we often don't connect those two things, do we? We, we don't think of wrath as a good thing. Um, but I, I think we have to step back for a second and remember what we've already, what we've already answer, asked and answered. We said, does God do good things? And the answer we looked at is God is good in how many of his works and ways? All. 
So does the Bible portray God as being wrathful towards sin? Yes. So we have to then, if the Bible says all of God's ways are good, and the Bible says to us that God is wrathful, then what do we have to logically conclude? His wrath is a function of his goodness. It is good that God is wrathful towards sin. And so I want us to talk today about God's indignation against sin. Now look with me again, and, and actually I'd like us to, we're gonna, I'm going to read the entire passage beginning in verse 16. So Romans 1, 16, and we're going to read through the rest of the passage, then we're just going to point out certain things as we work through this. Paul says in Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. A lot in that passage. And there is no way, shape, or form that we are going to be able to unpack everything that Paul provides for us in Romans chapter 1. But I just want us to, particularly using verse 18 as sort of a guide for us in understanding what Paul is saying about the wrath of God. And the first thing that we see 
that God's wrath is revealed. God is wrathful towards man's sin. It's important to note here that, first of all, Paul establishes who it is that has the right to be wrathful. It is God. Now, now this is important for us to keep in mind. Later on, towards the end of this book, in Romans chapter 13, Paul is going to tell us that we should never become wrathful ourselves, but rather we need to leave our, the injustices that are done against us, we're to leave that to what? The wrath of God. So he begins with the wrath of God and then actually uses the wrath of God as a way for us to find hope against those who despitefully or despitefully use us and mistreat us. And that it's not for us to respond in wrath, rather that is God's prerogative. But yes, we must recognize that God is wrathful towards sin. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't gloss over it. We cannot use other passages of Scripture to argue away the fact that God is wrathful for sin. It is the clear statement of Scripture here. Now, who is this God, the only God, who is wrathful? Well, if we look in verse 17, we see that this God is a righteous God. And that that righteousness is actually revealed in the gospel, the, in it, the gospel that is the power of God for salvation, in that gospel, God is revealed to be righteous. And so, and then in just in tandem with that, Paul then goes on to say that something else is revealed about God, and that is that he is a God of wrath. So God, Paul counterbalances these two things. God is righteous and God is wrathful. Now, when he does that, he's making a point about the wrath of God. That God's wrath, is it ever unrighteous? Is it ever without that, that action of justice? Or does God ever judge or act wrathfully without proper justice in mind? And the answer is no. He's righteous and that righteousness extends to the way in which he is wrathful. He is wrathful in dealing particularly with mankind's sin. Now, the term wrath that's used here, the wrath of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What does that word describe, wrath? I think sometimes we get a a wrong idea of what wrath is. So um, we use that expression today, somebody crosses us, Somebody does something wrong. Sometimes we even use it in a joking way and we'll say, oh, they're really going to feel my what? Wrath. And, and, and oftentimes that conception of it is sort of an a, a, uh, action that is driven by passion. An action that is driven by um, overwhelming anger at a circumstance that has happened. That is not the word. There is a Greek word that would be appropriate for that idea, but that is not the Greek word that Paul chooses to use. Rather, he uses a term that refers to the fact that God is consistent in his reaction to sin, that he always responds with wrath, that it is not a reaction, but rather it is an entire attitude based upon the nature of who he is. God 
never tolerates sin. He always responds to sin with wrath. Now, this is, again, poured out throughout the New Testament. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, he calls us to put away sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, that it might not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He tells us that there's not to be any filthiness, nor foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And then he says this, you may be sure, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or pure, or who is covetousness, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then he says this, let no one deceive you with, what kind of words? Empty words. For because of these things, these sinful actions, the wrath of God comes or is coming upon the sons of disobedience. I think it's important to note that those who deny that God acts wrathfully towards sin, the only thing they have to appeal to are empty words, vain words, words that have no substance to them. And what's amazing is to see in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1 that, that as a result of God's wrath, which we're going to see in just a few moments, as a result of God's wrath upon mankind, people suppress the truth, they turn aside from that idea of God being wrathful towards sin, towards sin. They choose not to honor him as God or give thanks to him, but instead they become what in their thinking? Futile or empty in their thinking. So just, just note, which we should not be surprised at the vain, empty world, words of the world that seeks to erase the idea or the concept of God's wrath. That comes from their actual indication that they are under his wrath. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so God is clearly wrathful towards man's sin. In fact, if we look at the end of the Bible, it portrays Christ as seated on a white horse. And what does Christ do as he rides in on that white horse? From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And notice the description. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That idea of treading the winepress of his fury on those who have rebelled against him, it's a common Old Testament idea. We see it used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the absolute defeat of an enemy by trampling them underfoot. And so that same imagery is spoken of here when he speaks of him treading the wine press. Now, thankfully, we live in a day and age in which grape juice and wine is made 
not with people's stinky feet <laughs> stepping on the grapes. But back in this day, they didn't have all the sophisticated things we have today. And so a wine press for them to get the juice out of the wine or out of the grapes, what would they do? They jump in the wine press and they would smash it with their feet. They would press down and break the grapes so that the juice would come out. And the scene would be very reminiscent of a bloody battle. As you would come up out of that, your, your clothing would be stained with the grape juice that had flowed out of there. There would have been this crushing that happened to this and this, this blood would have flowed out of that wine press. And all of this, John points to as an indication of what it's going to be like when God unleashes his wrath on mankind. God is wrathful towards man's sin. Now, we have to recognize that God's wrath is used in two different ways in Scripture. There's two different, I guess, administrations or executions of God's wrath that are described. The one that we tend to think of the most is the description that we see in Revelation chapter 19. God eternally punishing in a fury the sinfulness of mankind. So generally, when you think of wrath or the wrath of God being portrayed, you think of it in terms of hell or the lake of fire. And that is absolutely true. God's wrath is executed through those means, through right now those who die going into the grave and being punished in hell. And then one day, hell, death, and everything that is in them will be brought out. Stand, everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Those not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast with death and the devil and all evil into the lake of fire that burns how long? Forever. And that is the full and complete execution of God's wrath on sin. But that is not the administration of God's wrath that Paul actually points to here. And actually, I think he, he chooses a more compelling description of God's wrath than even that view. Because that view, unfortunately, what we have the tendency to do is we say, well, that's way off in the future, right? God's wrath is only a future event. And that's the idea that we often come away with when we think about the wrath of God. In fact, perhaps you've talked to people, I've talked to people who talk about how one day when they continue and persist, persist in their rejection of Christ, that one day when they're in hell, they plan to live it up with their buddies. They plan to have beers and get drunk and do all these different types of things, thinking that the wrath of God is only a future event. But that's not what Paul says here. Notice very carefully again what he says. The wrath of God is revealed. In fact, the way that this could be translated, John MacArthur says that the wrath of God is constantly being revealed. Or the wrath of God is ongoingly being revealed. What that means is that God's wrath is not simply a matter of something that is going to happen in the future, but rather his wrath is exhibited now. Now, how is that wrath 
exhibited. It's exhibited through the curse. Now, if you remember when God made his promise to Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that day, they would surely what? Die. And they did die from a spiritual perspective. But instead of bringing physical death upon them, God, in his mercy and grace, cursed man, cursed woman, and cursed the earth. Now, Again, this is where we have a tendency to think, well, how can that be a part of God's goodness? How can, how can the curse be a good action from God? And Paul develops that for us here in this passage. He talks about how there has been a desire for mankind not to honor God as they ought to, but rather they turn away from honoring him, they dishonor him, and as a result of their dishonor, what do they receive in turn? Further dishonor. There's a theme developed of dishonor and exchange. They sought, they chose not to honor God, and so they did that which was, they exchanged who God was, and that brought about dishonor in their actions. We see this in, in mankind did not honor God, But instead, they exchanged who he was for idols. Mankind did not honor God's design for marriage, but rather reverted or exchanged that for homosexual relationships that led to further dishonor in their bodies. And what this ends up leading to is an entire wholesale exchange of any acknowledgement of God so that they would have a dishonorable mind, a vain mind, thoughts, and actions. And this dishonor ends up corrupting all of society. And that's when we come to the end of Romans chapter 1. What does the wrath of God look like? It looks like a world filled with people who, as Paul says in verse 28, do what ought not to be done. And what is that? Well, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, of evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You know what this describes? The world we live in today. Have we not seen man rise up against man? And do every single one of these ridiculous actions towards each other. Why does that happen? It is the direct result of God being wrathful towards sin. Him cursing sin. Now God is wrathful towards sin. And then he describes what sin is. Notice what he says here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. These two terms, ungodliness and unrighteousness, are two sides of the same coin. And I really feel like they they are helpful in defining what sin truly is. He speaks, first of all, of ungodliness. Ungodliness refers to living a life without reverence or reference to God. The term actually has the idea of not bowing down. That's the literal 
uh, translation of it, to not bow down. And it comes to have this idea of being irreverent towards God, not seeking to know God, turning away from God. I think there's no better example of what ungodliness is than to see what Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve were created to live a life in full dependence and reference to God. The serpent came and that's when ungodliness began to work its way in. Because they exchanged the words of God for the words of the serpent. They exchanged glorifying God with seeking their own glory. And as a result of that, God dealt with them in his wrath by punishing them. And so ungodliness is the attempt of mankind to live independent of God, to dethrone him and to place yourself on that throne, to live as though he does not exist. Ungodliness, and then God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. Unrighteousness, as just the general Greek term, refers to a violation of human rights or, more particularly, the failure to conform to a standard of human ethical norms and um, moral norms. So one could be, in, in whatever particular society it is, they would be um, unrighteous if they did not obey the law. In some sense, you could say that today. If you're driving down 79... And, and what's the speed limit on 79 in Allegheny County? 55. And if you're, going, if you're going 70 miles an hour, are you being unrighteous? Yes, you're violating the law that's been given. If you're going 56 miles an hour, are you being unrighteous? Yes, you're violating the law. But Paul gives this idea of righteousness or unrighteousness a a further definition in showing us that unrighteousness is a failure to live up to or measure up to the standard of God himself. Again, if we notice what is said in verse 17, the gospel that he's not ashamed of, it reveals the what of God, the righteousness of God. And so that righteousness of God becomes the very standard for which we are judged. Listen, God judges us based upon our dependence upon him and our conformity to his moral standard, to his ethical standard, to his righteousness. Now here's the reality that no one, no one lives up to that standard. And if Paul is telling us that God's wrath is revealed against all, this is not just some ungodliness and some unrighteousness, but it's revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, then who rightly deserves the wrath of God? Everyone. Everyone. But there... There is an understanding and a hope that Paul gets to that we're going, that we're going to get to here in the next two minutes. <laughs> I have a lot more to cover, uh, so I'm going to try to go at a breakneck speed. I told you, like, I, was, I was struggling with this because it's just such a big subject. I, I, really, like, I really could spend 
months, probably years, delving into the depths of what is being described here. Just, just to quickly note something that Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. He says that he has been crucified with Christ. He no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And the life that he now lives in the flesh, he lives by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is where hope comes in because what does Paul say in the hope of the gospel, the good news? The good news that tells us that God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith because it's written, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Faith becomes the key that unlocks our hope beyond the wrath of God. And so while God is wrathful towards sin and sin's description is those who are ungodly, unrighteous, how does man tend to respond to that revelation of God's wrath and God's righteousness? Do they accept it or do they suppress it? They suppress it. Which brings us to see man's denial. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who... By their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Paul's going to go on to describe how there are certain things that are plainly seen about God. His eternal power, his divine nature. It's going to show that that ever since the beginning, these things have been clearly perceived. That if we look out in nature today, we can see abundant evidence of a God to whom we owe our existence and to whom we owe our lives. I had someone text me an article today. And it was an article talking about um, a comparison of a bunch of academic studies on the cells in the human body. And it had, it had come up to, to, to determine how many, how many cells there were in the human body. And then it said this. Um, it said that there was a perfect balance in the human body, in the cell sizes. Uh, it, it, used, it used terms like natural balancing act, or that our cells are perfectly sized. Now, what it went on to argue was that this is just some sort of fluke of nature. And what, what we see as those who know God and, and know Christ is that is nature screaming at us, there's a creator. It's not by accident that things are perfectly balanced in your body. Paul said it. The Lord knit us together in our mother's wombs. But what does mankind do about that with that evident, clear truth? They suppress it. And as they suppress the truth, as they turn from the truth, as is the truth whenever you turn from any truth, their thinking becomes empty and futile. Their thinking becomes nonsensical. It becomes foolishness. What is a fool? A fool is somebody who knows the truth yet ignores it. You know, think, think about uh, foolish things that people do. Um, for instance, if you had a kid, let's say, that, let's say you had a kid in college, all right, someone who has grown, is now an adult, hopefully is thinking somewhat rationally, although kids in college, that can be questioned at times. And he decides he's going to set up a hoop 
in the middle of 79 and play basketball there. All right? How many of you would think that that's foolish? All right? That's pretty foolish. What is he doing? What is he intentionally doing? He's suppressing what he knows to be true. And that is exactly what the world does when it turns away from the reality that God deals with sin. And so sin in its most basic form is a denial of God and God's truth and God's wrath. And it leads to empty thinking and darkened hearts. Which, as we've already touched on, the effect of God's wrath on sin is that he gives mankind up to further ungodliness and sin. Very quickly, the term that's used there for uh, giving them up, it has the idea of delivering over. It's used twice in Romans chapter 1. And its primary meaning means conveying something which a person has a strong personal interest in. What is amazing to see of what Paul's argument in Romans 1 is, mankind wants to live free of God. Mankind wants to live ungodly and unrighteously. So what does God give them as an aspect of his wrath? He gives them what they want. This is a shuddering idea. This should terrify us. Because what we want is to live free, right? We want to be free of all restrictions that that God as creator would place upon us. And God says, I will visit you in my wrath. My wrath is giving you exactly what you want. And so today, the goodness of God is connected with the wrath of God in that we have a world that screams to us something is wrong. How many of you think that it is the correct way for humanity to act when we're looking at the war in Ukraine? I don't think any of us would say that's what humanity is here for. How many of you would say that social inequities, racial inequities in this country, that that's that's what humanity is made for? It's not. When you've experienced harshness in your life, when people have treated you wrongly, that is the wrath of God, the corruption of sin that God is allowing this world to work in, and he's doing it to say, wake up! His wrath is actually a means to transformation. Which then takes us back to the very beginning of this passage. Is there hope from this wrath? And there is. The gospel is the message of hope. Notice what Paul says in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, and I'm going I'm to substitute what gospel means. I'm not ashamed of the good news. Because the good news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who, what? Believes. Both Jew and Greek. The Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith is a life lived not 
in ungodliness, but in godliness. Dependence, reverence, and reference to God in everything. That is why the scripture tells us that anything that is done without faith is what? Sin. Why? Because it's done without reference or reverence to God. And that's why walking in faith then provides us hope to be righteous, to be declared righteous in God, to have given to us by that faith the very righteousness that God demands. So that instead of being instruments of his wrath, vessels of his wrath, that wrath is, not, is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. But if you are godly and righteous, you have none of the wrath of God. And that becomes the great hope. So we have to recognize, does God look the other way when we sin? No. He hates all sin because he is holy. And actually, as Romans tells us, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is actually an emblazoned mark of God's goodness on this world, calling us to faith in Jesus Christ as the only remedy for the corruption that sin brings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. This is a vast and deep subject, and we've only scratched just the very tiniest part of the surface. Lord, we thank you that you are good, and in that goodness you are wrathful, and that wrath is good because it shows us the only hope from that wrath is found in Christ, and that you have made provision for us to live by faith in him. Take your word, apply it to hearts and lives here today. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.